thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. Our reading today comes from James chapter 2, beginning at the, first, at the 14th verse. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of them says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but then they do nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodgings to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without dead deeds is dead. Here goes God's word. Uh, I don't know if you've ever, I'm not sure this is a game, uh, but I'm sure you've all done it before, where you've uh, listened in on someone else's phone call, uh, and uh, by listening to one side of the phone call, if tried to figure out who they're talking to, uh, you probably shouldn't do this if people aren't aware that you're listening, just as an aside. But you know, you know, your friend or your mom or your dad or your sister or brother, whatever it might be, takes, the, takes a phone call and you kind of, you just kind of work out from what they say and how they respond and the sorts of things that they say, who it is that they're speaking to and what the conversation might be about. You've all done that kind of thing before, you're kind of putting the pieces together. To some degree, that's exactly what we do when we are reading an epistle or a letter in the New Testament. We have one end of a conversation. So we have, in this case, James's statements and his teaching uh, in response to a certain situation or circumstance that he has heard about or that uh, has been reported to him, whatever it might be. And so we have to kind of reconstruct a little bit, shall we say, the other side of the conversation. We have to try to work out, okay, so if this is what James is saying, then what is he addressing in this community of faith that he's talking to? You with me so far? Which raises a really interesting question. Because as you, as you just heard Matt read, he goes pretty hard here, doesn't he? Uh, about faith and works being inseparable. You, you can't have one without the other. That's the, that's the gist of it, isn't it? Right? You can't have faith without works. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, if uh, you have faith without works, it's dead. It's useless. It doesn't save. It's all that kind of stuff. Which raises the question, doesn't it? That there's some community of faith that James is writing to who thought that you could separate faith and works, which is pretty weird, isn't it? 
Because what James is saying here is not, well, it's not rocket science, and it's not even particularly new. Like, you don't have to look very far in Scripture to find this same kind of teaching nearly everywhere. If you go back in the law to Deuteronomy chapter 6, one of the famous passages out of Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which James refers to in the passage that was read. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress these commandments on your children. Talk about these commandments when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. It's about what you do. Know the laws, know the commands, talk about them all the time, teach them to your children and get after it. Uh, you might be familiar with uh, the passage in Micah 6, 8, uh, where the prophet phrases up this question, you know, what, what does the Lord require of you? And it's to love justice, act with mercy, right, and walk humbly with God. And walking humbly with God in that, con- in that context is about knowing His commandments. It's about what we do. If you get into the New Testament, nothing changes. When John the Baptist bursts onto the scene in, Matthew, uh, in Matthew's account in chapter 2, and people come out to see him, uh, and uh, he's talking about repentance, and what he says to those who come is he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think... Now, you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Do the right sorts of things. You say that you're repenting. You say that you're sorry. Well, prove it. Show it to me. And Jesus picks up the same kind of thing. He talks about the importance of what people do. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and of the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, If you go to John's gospel, in John chapter 15, for example, uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples and there tells them that if you love me, you will obey my commands. Uh, When you get to Paul, for instance, in Romans chapter 2, Listen to what Paul has to say. He says, For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous or who will be justified. Now let me just pause for a moment because we do need to just momentarily jump into some theological water and then kind of clamber back out again. But it's important to just pause for a moment. Because Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 3, verse 28... These words, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Did you hear that? We maintain that a person is justified or declared righteous by faith apart from the works of the law. In James chapter 2, verse 24, which was just read for us a couple of moments ago, James says, you see that people are justified by what they do and not by faith alone. This is theology, right? You find two, uh, two of these kind of opinions and you say, okay, what's going on here? And so I just want to pause briefly because for a long time, uh, it's, it, it, many scholars would believe that Paul and James were kind of at loggerheads with each other. And so it's important just to, to pause briefly here. I don't want to take too long because if we do, we miss what James is on about. James isn't writing to Paul. He's writing to somebody else. 
Now, can I just say that these two statements, justified by faith and not apart from the works of the law and justified by what we do, apart, not by faith alone, are only in conflict with each other if they're answering the same question. You with me? So if Paul and James were in a conference call with random Christian, and random Christian said, boys, I have a question for both of you. Uh, what's the relationship between faith and works? And Paul goes, oh, well, let me just put it this way. He said, you're justified by faith and forget about works. And James goes, no, my friend, it's the other way around. Then we'd have a problem, wouldn't we? But they're not talking to one person. They're actually addressing completely different situations. We're overhearing two different phone calls, if I can put it that way. And Paul is addressing a very different kind of issue. And again, let me just really briefly sketch it out. Because for Paul, one of the issues he's dealing with is how Gentiles became Christians. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term Gentile, from a Jewish perspective, there were two types of people in the world. There were Jews, and there was everybody else. And everybody else was a Gentile. Right. And so for the earliest Christians who had followed Jesus, who was a Jewish teacher, who was the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, who talked about obedience to the law of Moses, who was the great kind of figure in the Israelites' history, they, they kind of did the math this way. A Gentile wants to begin to follow Jesus, who's Jewish. So if you, a Gentile, want to become a Christian, you need to become a Jewish first, and then once you're a Jew and you continue to keep the law and symbolized by the act of circumcision in particular, then you can be a follower of Jesus. That was their argument. You can see the logic of it, can't you? Paul, however, said that is just not on. And I think we're thankful that he did, aren't we? Uh, because what he essentially said is that people can, shall we say, Gentiles, not just Gentiles, but Jews as well, are justified or declared righteous by God, by faith in Jesus. Right? They don't have to become obedient to the law of Moses to, in order to get to faith in Jesus. They can just kind of skip that step and begin to believe in Jesus. Now, what's interesting is that immediately following that, if you read the rest of Romans, Paul is not backwards about saying how you ought to live your life as someone who has faith in Jesus. So it's not like he says, listen, just have faith and then do whatever you like. It's okay. No, he's got some very clear outcomes. The works... The works that he actually talks about is coming from faith. You with me so far? So when Paul uses the word justified, you've heard that word before. It's a good church word, isn't it? Justified, right? Only kind of exceeded by like something like super lapsarianism in terms of just sheer obscurity. Nonetheless, <laughs> to say that you're justified actually means to declare someone righteous, and Paul uses this, the term justified in a, in a judicial sense. So God the judge declares someone righteous because they place their faith in Jesus. It's the declaration of Jesus. Oh, sorry, the declaration of God. James uses it very differently. And he uses it, shall we say, in its more usual way. And in the Old Testament and the New, how it usually works out is to declare someone righteous, it's done in a moral sense. In other words... I watch your lifestyle, and if you are consistently righteous in the things that you do, after a while, I declare you to be righteous. That's how it works. This is what James is talking about in his context. You with me so far? Let's kind of clamber back out of the waters, dry ourselves off, and come back to James. Because as I said, James is not writing to Paul. 
He's also not writing theology. He's writing theologically for a group of Christians. A group of Christians who are asking, can we just have faith without works? What a bizarre question. Can we have faith and just never act on it? And James goes pretty hard at him, doesn't he? You foolish person, he says. Like, honestly, are you an idiot? Of course you can't do that, right? It's a pretty big deal. So what, what would be going on for a group of Christians to begin to think that maybe they could just have faith without works? Let me draw you back to the very beginning of James, James chapter 1, and just remind you about how James begins this letter. In verse 2, he says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Consider it pure joy when you experience and face trials of many kinds, which has suggested to some that the circumstances, there's a group of believers who are experiencing opposition and persecution to the, in their faith. We find out in chapter 2 that some of that is coming from the wealthy members of their society, those who are exploiting them, those who are dragging them to court, those who are blaspheming the name of Jesus. Now, just imagine if we were a group of people who were being oppressed for our faith, like really oppressed for our faith, not just kind of mocked in the media and stuff, which is often what happens, or disregarded as irre irrelevant, but seriously oppressed. Wouldn't the temptation be to turn down the volume on our actions, to draw less attention to ourselves, to, to, to live our faith a little bit more quietly so that we don't cop it anymore? Doesn't that sound reasonable? Another commentator actually suggests, coming out of chapter 2, where James talks about favoritism, particularly to the wealthy, and he suggests another potential reason or another potential context in which they were tempted to kind of turn the volume down. And that's in relationship to wealthy people in their midst. Now, here's how the argument goes. Again, imagine we're a group of relatively oppressed Christians. We don't have a lot of money. We don't have a lot of power. We don't have a lot of status. And all of a sudden, a couple of people who are wealthy, who have status, who have power, join our community of faith. Surely this is an answer to prayer, isn't it? Because all those rich <clears throat> buggers, are, they're, they're oppressing us. They're making life hard for us. So now we've got some rich people, and they can help us. When those bad guys exploit us, the wealthy can help us. When they take us to court, our friends can help us. Isn't this great? But we might want to just be careful what we kind of tell them the expectations of faith are. Right? Like, we probably don't want to say to the wealthy people, now Jesus says you should sell everything you have and give it to the poor. They might leave. So let's, um, that's a metaphor. You can see how then you could lower the bar for those who had wealth in order that the expectation was not so high so that they wouldn't leave. You with me so far? Basically allowing people to turn the volume down on their faith. Does it sound vaguely familiar? It's not just some church in the first century who does that. Aren't we tempted to do the same thing? We turn the volume down on our faith because, well, I don't know, we, we don't know how to answer questions or we know that we don't live up to what we profess to believe and that's just going to get awkward sooner rather than later or whatever it might be. 
We turn the volume down in our faith so that we are left only with a private devotional faith. I read the Bible in the morning and I, I pray on the train, right? But I, the rest of my life, I'm, I'm just trying to be a good person. Just kind of fit in, be nice. Does God want nice people? Is that his grand plan? <laughs> no. What a stupid grand plan. If he wanted nice people, he would have hired a bunch of Pharisees. God doesn't want nice people. He wants new people. He wants people like Jesus. People who will participate with him in his mission to restore and renew everything in Christ Jesus. That's what he wants. He doesn't want nice people. And so we reduce the work of God to just being nice and doing some nice devotional bits at home. And the same thing then occurs when we talk, when we, we have conversations about the bar. A few months ago, I talked about the fact how difficult it is for us to have conversations about discipleship. And part of the reason is that the bar is so low. If you show up to church every so often and you, you know, you own one of these and have cracked it open once or twice in the last couple of years and you pray occasionally on the train, hey, you're killing it as a Christian. Which means what are we going to talk about when we're done? I assume you're here because I'm talking to you. I don't really want to ask you how much you read the Bible in case you ask me, <laughs> right? So we're just not going to go there. So what do we talk about? We don't talk about what we're learning or what God's doing or how we're being challenged or any of that sort of stuff. We talk about the weather and sport and what we did on the weekend and our holidays and we never get to anything. James is speaking to us. Speaking right to us. And what does he have to say? That kind of faith... That's not demonstrable in works. Can't save you. And he, what he means by that is he's talking about salvation. Now again, Paul talks about salvation kind of as this, as this one-off moment when we place our faith in Jesus. Right? The, the rest of the New Testament in places like James and Hebrews talk about salvation as something that is not just a one-off, but is something that is a, attained to over a long period of obedient perseverance, that we inherit salvation. It's not a kind of a once and done. Hey, I gave my life to Jesus. Isn't that great? I'll see you in heaven. And there's this whole idea of persevering and enduring and attaining to the salvation that we have received. This is what James is saying. You think you've got some faith but no works? Well, that's, that, that's not going to save you. It's a dead and useless faith. It is so useless. Let me give you an example of how useless it is. Uh, you find a brother or sister, someone who's a fellow Christian, a fellow believer, and they don't have enough to wear and they don't have any food, and you say, God bless you. Stay warm and well-fed. How much good does that do them? Nothing. It does them no good. You might feel fine. Oh, I just have a warm fuzzy for kind of saying that to them. They're still freezing cold and starving to death. Well played. That kind of faith is useless, he says. Faith without works is dead. Faith that cannot be demonstrated, that can only be talked about or explained. Well, that's just demonic, he says. It's demonic faith. Is it even the demons have good theology? But you notice how they live 
And that shows you what they really believe, doesn't it? In fact, the demons at least shudder at the final judgment. They actually think about the fact that there is one God, and they shudder in fear at the fact that they're going to be judged. You, Lot, don't even do that. This is what James is getting at. You foolish person, he says. I'll just pause here for a moment and, and make two comments. James is not speaking about either of these, but I think it's worth just moment, mentioning momentarily. The one of them is that it's pretty important what we believe because our beliefs will actually impact what we do. We see it all the time in our lives and the lives of those around us, don't we? The things that people believe about themselves, the things that they believe about their world, they get acted out in how they live their lives. What we believe in terms of the orthodoxy, right, the things that we believe in our minds, the propositions that we hold about who Jesus is and all those sorts of things are really important because it leads into a certain type of practice, and I'll come back to that. James is not addressing that, but I think it's important for us to grapple with. But secondly, let me just pause momentarily to talk about deathbed conversions. Remember the, uh, the thief on the cross with Jesus? Remember me? When you come into your kingdom and Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. I'm pretty sure James wouldn't say, he had no faith, he didn't get saved. I'm sorry, he had no works, he didn't get saved. I think that there's, there's more to this than anything else. But James is not writing to people who are on their deathbeds. But he is writing to people whose faith is on life support. People who have allowed this division to exist. Someone will say, well, some have faith and some have works. You know how it is. Everyone has different gifts and different abilities and different skills and stuff. You know, some have the faith bit and some have the works. And James is like, that's rubbish. They have to work together. Do you want proof? Let me give you proof. Abraham and Rahab. Now, for a, a primarily Jewish congregation, this would, have been, this would have been gold. Abraham, the father of the faith. And again, he was justified declared righteous, not just on the basis of his faith, but by what he did. God watched him, right? And he acted righteously again and again and again and again, and God declared him righteous. James says his faith and his, his actions were working together. The Greek word underneath working together is the same word that we use for synergy. His faith and his works were working together. There was something, something greater than, than either of them on their own in what Abraham was doing. He said, what about Rahab? And Rahab's a great example. If you don't know the story, it's told in Joshua chapter 2 in the Old Testament. She is kind of everything that the Israelites were not supposed to be. She was a Canaanite, so she was a Gentile. She was a prostitute, uh, quite likely just representative of, of everything that was wrong with Canaanite religion. And she is saved not by her profession of faith, if you remember the story, some spies come to Jericho. They go to her house or her brothel, depending on how you kind of read the text, which is kind of an interesting place for the Israelites to go first, but nonetheless. And she confesses to them that everyone knows what God has done in bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt, parting the Red Sea to bring them here, and how he is about to bring them into Canaan and giving them the land. She says, everyone knows that. Everyone had the same knowledge. What saved Rahab? It wasn't her faith in what God had done. It was the fact that she hid the spies, gave them lodging, and sent them off safely. That's what saved her. Faith, James says, without works, has no animation. It is dead. They're inseparable. 
You cannot have one without the other, James says. One of uh, the commentators that I've been reading uh, talks about this as a stalled faith. You ever driven a car that stalls on you? Most people who kind of had to buy their first car <laughs> had a car like that. I had a couple, actually. Uh, I had one car. It, just, uh, it would get me to point a to, from, a to point, from point A to point B, generally in one piece, often with a couple of unintentional stops along the way. It just stalled. So I did own a car, but it wasn't <clears throat> the ideal car. It didn't live up to its full potential as a vehicle. This is faith without works. It's like a flower that never blooms. It's like a plant that never bears fruit. Has anyone seen the Toy Story movies, Pixar? You know the basic premise of the Toy Story movies? That a toy only achieves its full purpose when it's being played with. A toy in a box in a museum is not really a toy. Toys are meant to be destroyed through play. And imagination and vibrancy. James says faith without works is like a toy without a child. It's, it's, yeah. it's not doing what it's supposed to do. It's not reaching its full potential. It's not expressing its full meaning. Which raises the question for us. What ought our works to look like? And I think, as I said, stated a little bit earlier, it, it actually derives from what we believe. So what do we believe about Jesus, for instance? Well, we believe lots of stuff, I suppose. But, you know, just as we can sometimes reduce the idea that God just wants us to be good people or nice people or, or happy people, and that's not true either. God does not want us to be happy that's not God's big plan. You read this thing through, you tell me how much happy you find in those who are faithfully following after Jesus. He doesn't want us to be happy. He wants us to be complete and whole and mature and all of those sorts of things. That's what's so significant. But just as we can reduce the, the work of God to, to this kind of nice thing for us, we can sometimes reduce the work of Jesus. And we've, we can reduce the work of Jesus to being just about forgiving our sins. I have to be careful here because that's a, that's a pretty big deal, isn't it? And we were dead in our sins, dead in our transgressions. We could not save ourselves. We needed to be saved. And what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection is very, very significant. But it's always struck me that when Jesus began to preach, when he arrived on the scene and began to preach, he did not preach, hey, everybody, I've come to forgive your sins. Do you remember what he preached? The kingdom of God is near. Repent. Believe the good news. The kingdom of God is here. And so salvation and forgiveness was not just so that we could kind of stamp our passport to get into heaven so that we could be forgiven. No, it was to enable us to enter into the kingdom so that we can participate in what Jesus has left us to do which is what the Father left him to do, which is to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We've been given the Holy Spirit not to convince us that we've been forgiven, but to empower and enable us to do the work that Jesus has left us to do. This, this is what we believe, whether you knew that before tonight or not. 
And if that's what we believe, if that's what we believe, then what kind of works flow from that? Well, you guys can do the math on that, can't you? It's probably a little bit about what James says here. Caring for those who are marginalized, poor, those who have received no justice and making sure that they do. Being those who are in thousands and thousands of different ways showing mercy and kindness and love in our acts of service, in our acts of kindness, acts of gentleness, acts of self-control. All of the things that James is going to go on to say, all of these actions which just turn the volume up on our faith so that we are living it out loud in order that we might come to maturity and completeness and wholeness. Faith and works have a synergy about them that cannot be found anywhere else. If you're kind of feeling a little bit dry in your faith, can I suggest you turn the volume up? Because perhaps what's dry is that you have a faith that's not nearly out loud enough. And you have a faith that is idle, a faith that is stalled. Don't wait to live out loud until you've got it all together because you'll never, ever dare because no one ever gets it all together. Don't wait until it's all sorted out in your head before you actually take the step to live your faith in an overt, public kind of way. James says a, a living faith, a faith that has synergy, that turns into something that other people notice and see comes when we allow it to work. So let your faith work this week. Think about what you believe and the sorts of actions that should mark someone who believes those sorts of things. If we believe that Jesus has called us to bring heaven on earth, well, then that ought to control some of our actions, shouldn't it? James is an incredibly practically and, uh, practical and hard-hitting book, isn't it? You have to be very careful what conversations you overhear lest you get dragged into them and find yourself in part of them. 